welcome back to another episode of the Over and Stumps Cricket Podcast. My name is Jono, his name is Sean, he joins me down the Zoom line and well, we're both fresh because we didn't play any cricket on Sunday because the Melbourne weather had other ideas, but we're both still absolutely exhausted because we stayed up to watch a magnificent triumph on Monday morning, but we're here kicking on, how are you doing mates? Um, still afterglow of, I think that tiredness is still hitting me. It feels like I did play a game on the weekend, such as the way I, you know, eventually, when I eventually slept Monday morning, what it felt like, but we're here now. It's all worth it in the end, isn't it? Well, I think there's always something about us as Australians waking up in the wee hours of the morning to watch sport on the other side of the world and particularly like big sport. This one was not, wasn't really like early enough to wasn't early enough in the morning to get an early night sleep in wake up and then start your day and it wasn't late enough to say like I'm just going to stay up all throughout the night it kind of felt like you were on school camp again on the last night and you just were like all right let's just stay up all night because it's the last night of camp it's what everyone did and just battled battled through it got through it and Monday was a bit of a write-off but I think it's just that little bit sweeter because we won Oh, it was the worst time you could have, I reckon, right in those little horrible witching hours in the middle of the night, I'd say. But, I mean, I think I would have rather on a Saturday night because, you know, if you're out drinking or something, it almost helps you get through. If you're out and about, everyone's sort of staying up till then. But when it's a Sunday night, too many people are asleep. And, I mean, I think at the back of the mind, there was this nagging saying, I'm going to be wrecked tomorrow, as you said about that school camp, that same thing where you throw caution to the wind. But... I mean, you only do it rarely and you hope it's worth it when you do. So, I mean, I, I think the last times I've stayed up like that have been for, you know, Australia in the Soccer World Cup ones. And this was a lot better result than that. So I, I, you end up taking what you can get. Yeah, quite a few bleary-eyed and running on fumes on in the office on Monday morning. Um, I thought for our friends across the ditch who got up at three o'clock in the morning to watch that. But again, that's probably at a bit more appropriate time to get up and watch it it is where we start our show today and we will well we'll dissect the triumph that was australia winning the world cup no one gave them a chance to um get up but they're champions then the men have finally won the trophy that has eluded them for so long yeah, and they did it sort of out of nowhere, I think, this time. Well, not quite this time last week, but, you know, last week we sort of looked before the semifinals. And, I mean, to me, the only way I think that Australia were going to have clear passage through was if New Zealand managed to knock off England because I think England were the one out of the four I was most wary of. But, yeah, I think that's the biggest upset is what New Zealand made you do in that semi. But, yeah, I mean, Australia just timed their run perfectly and they have a habit of doing that in ICC tournaments. And you think of all the one-day cups they've won and even the women in the 2020s, they all make a habit of peaking right at that end bit and maybe starting off a bit slower than some of their opponents. But, yeah, they've done it perfectly. It just answered all the critics of their 2020 form and now, well, I guess they start gearing up for the Ashes but then defending the crown next year, which is a pretty unique situation. It is a unique situation. Not even not even 12 months from now and Australia will have defended their crown, which is um, crazy. Um, advantage them being on home, so- on home soil. There is something to be said, though, about tournament play and the way that Australian teams play their way throughout the tournament. They had no form going into the competition. Everyone said, oh, you'll be lucky to get through the group. Um, massive criticism piled on them after that. Absolutely pummeled by England had a couple of um easier kills to get them into the knockout stage and then through that knockout stage through Bangladesh and the West Indies I, w- I want to focus in slightly on that um England game and particularly the aftermath and you wouldn't hear it from anyone in the Australian camp but it looked to me that there was a clear change of intent yeah they were chasing smaller totals against both Bangladesh and the West Indies. But it's clear that they had had the conversation to say that we needed to show more intent and be more assertive when we've got the bat in hand because that's the way that we're going to win these games and win them quite comfortably in the end. Agreed. And I think it was... 
I mean, looking back now, hindsight's perfect to look back on. It makes it all look a bit rosier that we were destroyed by England because it ends up being the turning point of the whole tournament and how Australia then go about approaching it. And it almost shocked them back into, you know, probably their initial plans as in they stopped messing about with the bowling lineup. You know, that was finally the end of, you know, Ash and Agar coming in and they backed their three pace bowlers regardless of what happened going forward which, you know, I think was important that they still managed to back in the likes of a Mitchell Stark who went for 15 and over in the final, yet he still gets the ball in the last over to do his job. I think although some things didn't go to plan, the way they sort of learnt to go back to what they'd planned for at the start of the tournament was ideal. And I think another big exponent of that is Mitch Marsh at three. And that I think that England loss sort of jolted them back into the idea that they needed someone with that intent that Marsh brings in that spot and to really have a crack at the opposition bowlers and not let the likes of a Chris or like someone like a Chris Wokes really get on top of them. You have to take it to them in T20 cricket. And Mitch Marsh has proven he's one of the best at it in the world at the moment, which is pretty remarkable to think of. A couple of weeks ago, this is where we'd be sitting with him and the likes of Stoinis and Wade being, you know, some of the best in their positions in the world in T20 cricket. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll, we'll touch on Mitch Marsh a little bit more later because there's, a lot of love for him out there around Australia at the moment. And he absolutely deserves every bit of love and pat on the back that he's getting. What I find really interesting is the way that Australia's grafted this. And we spoke about the need for them to show a bit more intent with the bat. And you mentioned the likes of Marcus Stoinis and Matthew Wade, usually bat at the top of the order for their um, big bash teams and in domestic cricket but they've been able to come in and slot into the roles. And we've seen a lot of teams as well throughout this competition. And I guess our T20 cricket has sort of evolved in the domestic leagues and internationally. And it was kind of going to be, it was kind of foretold that this was the way that this tournament was going to be played out, that everyone's going to have a specific role in the down the order and they're picking players in the side for to play their specific role. Australia just picked good cricketers and good experienced cricketers who've been there in the pressure moments. And we, we laughed about it before on previous podcasts that, Hey, we'll just pick all our quick bowlers and our best spinner. And we'll just pick um, our batters. We'll shovel all our top order explosive batters in and in the middle order, but they just picked good experienced match hardened cricketers who were able to stand up in the high pressure moments. They did, and they stuck to their guns a bit. I mean, they were unique in their bowling setup in the fact that they had the three pace bowlers, but then they sort of neglected what other teams were doing, which was to have those two spinners functioning. And instead, they sort of went for the batting heavy option, which I think was pretty heavily criticised at many points of the tournament when it might not have been working for them. But I think the biggest thing that Australia did was they stuck to their guns in that manner because... In the end, they offered a point of difference that no other team had in that they had three obviously world-class bowlers who had adapted to the T20 game beautifully. And I think, you know, Josh Hazelwood's work in the final was pretty magnificent, but it sums up his past couple of months of him adapting to T20 cricket, which they needed as a bowling unit. They couldn't just rely on Stark and the pace bowling and then have Hazelwood and Cummins sometimes getting hit out of the attack. I think them coming into their own, along with the likes of Zampa flourishing, was absolutely crucial but then you also look at some of the other stories in that Wade and Stoinis adapting their game and sort of dropping completely what they've been doing at BBL level which is something that's pretty hard to do that's ended up winning them the tournament because they're not getting to the final if those two don't band together first of all against South Africa but then again against Pakistan so just a crazy effort and I think it just shows how strong the Australian team were behind the scenes to stick to their guns when they had every reason to try and change things up completely after that England loss. That England loss was so bad that um, great Steve Waugh came out and said, well, we need a review into T20 cricket. Well, they only went on and went and won the bloody thing, um, which is um, kind of funny. You mentioned Stoinis and Matthew Wade, and we'll touch on Matthew Wade in the beginning, but Stoinis has spoken recently about him finally feeling ready and that this was going to be his moment that he could win games of cricket for Australia. And I remember the 2019-50 over World Cup and you see this big lump of a guy batting in the middle order, can bowl some overs of handy, medium pace. 
and everyone would just get frustrated at the likes of Glenn Maxwell, but Marcus Stoinis specifically, that he wouldn't only be able to do this one job really, really well, and that is bat at the top of the order for the Melbourne Stars and wouldn't get that opportunity in the Australian team because of Finch and Warner and Wade, all top-order batters themselves and more accomplished top-order batters. So it's been very pleasing to see Stoinis's evolution, and it's credited a lot of work in the IPL and Vicky Ponting at the Delhi Capitals to build him up to where he is now and the fact that he's been able to come in and have a huge impact on this tournament for Australia. It's really, we'll speak a lot about this as we roll through a few of these players, but I think it's really his defining moment as a cricketer. Agreed. And I think it's absolutely massive just touching on how, as you're very right, Stoinis had every right to think that he should be a top order bat considering the form that he's had in the past two BBLs probably makes him up there with the most informed T20 opening bat in Australia. Just the way he's done that for the Stars has been remarkable. But I think it's an even bigger credit to him to be able to then adjust. And especially after that 2019 World Cup, I mean, that would have been so tough on him because the expectation on him to be the finisher, whether he wanted it or not, was massive. And in the end, that middle order faltering probably cost us in key moments in that World Cup. But also disappointed a lot when in that semi-final when we got done by England, there was a lot of expectations that he'd come out there and change the game, which, you know, as we all know, isn't an easy thing to do. But then... All through the gate first ball by Adil Rashid. And as he was again in this World Cup, you knew it was coming. And it's more on him and his growth as a cricketer that he was able to adapt in that moment. And he didn't get the bat against England and Isodi, but you saw it in the... um. You saw it in the Pakistan semi-final. Shadab Khan's wreaking absolute havoc to the Australian top order, taking wickets in every single over that he bowls. He comes out there and you're thinking, well, it's not great against um, right arm leg spin arm, puppy. How's he going to go here? But ends up ke- keeping his cool head, getting through it and guiding Australia home. Exactly. And I think there's two defining deliveries one from each of those final games that Australia played and the first one to me in that semi was when you know wickets are tumbling and Shadab Khan is getting these wickets and I think one of the first balls after a wicket Stoinis whacks him over mid-wicket for six and just sort of doesn't worry about just trying to consolidate after a wicket and I think it was massive for his confidence but also Wade was just joining him then and to see that happen it sets a tone for pretty tight run chase in the end and then I think another one we touch on, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later with Mitch Marsh, but his sixth first ball against Adam Milne when he comes in the final is another pretty defining ball for what happens with Australia. So I think both of those two balls, both which end up being sixes in pretty vulnerable times for Australia by two of their players who, when you look back at it, are ones who've had a lot of expectation on them but haven't reached the heights of a David Warner or a Steve Smith or even an Adam or, or even an Aaron Finch in shorter form cricket. It's pretty massive for how some of Australia's players and squad members have matured and really worked into their role but have come into their own at this time. So it also heralds a pretty interesting time going forward about what it means for these type of players now who, although they're old, are now maybe just getting comfortable and starting to excel at the international level. Mm, well, we, we know it doesn't come straight away unless you're a freak and it takes a little bit longer if you're a batter to sort of reach that real sweet spot. Um, We'll touch on Mitch Marsh. I want to, um, I think it's time that we really spurt over him a little bit, um, as most networks have done already. But, and you mentioned it before, just him coming out and hit bopping that first ball from Adam, that he faced from Adam Milne, um, bowling it at like 150 kilometers an hour and just flicking it off his pads for six. Um, you knew he was on and you knew that all the word was he's going to have a great tournament and everyone just line up at the back of the nets to watch him hit balls because he was being in imperious form. And, gee, this was, this was the moment that many had been waiting for and he delivered in spades. And to do it at such a time, I think, is the craziest bit. I think in the games before, including the semi-final, and, you know, his half century against the West Indies was good, but he sort of promised 
and sort of got to 30 or 40 or sometimes even 50 really well, but probably, you know, falter that final bit when it comes to winning Australia game by himself and shouldering the load. But to come out and do them in the World Cup final of all times is pretty massive for someone's confidence and their status. And, I mean, he was just spectacular. Just the way he was striking it was he suddenly realised everything that would have been said in the Aussie camp about the way he was batting, kind of realised what they meant. And I think when you see that raw power and timing and the way he just controlled it was was pretty inspiring to see that type of batting just without abandon and just bludgeoning it everywhere. But you could Something see could it happen. as well. Like the, the camera fixed the shot on him after he, I think it just smacked, pick, pick a number, smacked a boundary. And he went down, fist pumped. Um, I think he was batting with Warner at the time. And there was the look of determination in his eyes, which was just like, we're getting this done. There's no way known that I'm not walking off this field having not brought the title home to Australia. And, okay, yeah, he didn't have the privilege of hitting the winning runs. That was um, Glenn Maxwell, which I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. Um, <laughs> but the fact that he was out there and able to have his, um, I think Rob Alinders, the great Rob Alinders put a video up on Twitter in his catalogue of cricketing gold. And it's as he does. As he does. It's titled, shout out, Rob, titled Seven Seconds of Pure Joy. And it's just Mitch Marsh running to celebrate with his teammates. And everyone loves Mitch Marsh. All the Australian team love Mitch Marsh and the person that he is and what he brings to that group. And I think everyone's seen that now. He's the type of, we saw it in the test documentary, the type of team man that he is. And yeah, you just think of what has been through with the Australian public and how far he's come. And to have that moment, it would do absolute wonders for him. And I think it's safe to say that he's very much got a place now in the pantheon of Australian cricket and the Marsh family. Oh, he does. And I mean, I think what's going to be the interesting bit going forward is what it means for him, not just in that form of cricket, but in other forms, because suddenly off the back of that, there is a little bit of chatter. I don't know how much it's going to get airtime and what the Australian selectors are going to do, because they've already kind of shot it down a little bit, but about him being included in an Ashes squad now, just off what he's managed to do and how he's looking. And I mean, some of that makes sense because he's also done it at shield level at a higher batting spot for a bit. So I think that's fair enough. If you put together a good bit of form upon coming back in shield cricket, by all means, he's putting pressure on Cameron Green and that's what you want. You want, you want that depth to be able to have multiple all-rounders sort of pushing each other to be better. And, you know, then you can find out which one is the better one, which, you know, it's going to be an interesting look, but just this in itself, I think, is massive for Mitch because, as you've talked about, he's been through the ringer multiple times, whether it's been fair or not. I think because Australian, as a cricketing nation, put a hell of a lot on emerging all-rounders because we want to see them take on the game and because they can be the most powerful factors in winning a cricket game. Like, you look at Ben Stokes for England and, you know, you look what he does, but you also look at what someone like... Shane Watson was put under in his career, which by all means was a solid, brilliant career, but was always sort of put a question mark next to could have been better because the Australian public just demands so much out of an all-rounder coming through, which to me is a bit unfair. Um, but, you know, Marsh was the same one in that bracket. And now I just think it's great for him because he's getting the respect he deserves because everyone who's encountered him in the game speaks glowingly of him and you know he's a young leader in his time with the scorchers and with wa so he's obviously doing a lot of things right and obviously he's a very good person so as i say good things come to nice people and i think now all of us who you know have a bit of a soft spot for him or have seen what he's been through are nothing but wrapped for what he's been able to do in the past week or so well you speak about him pushing for higher honors it's a uh... Beyond doubt that he'll be in that um, one-day team whenever that one-day team suits up again. And it's not beyond, it's not without precedent that the Australian test selectors have picked a, picked the guy for an Asher series purely based off their white ball form. You remember um, George Bailey in that um, series away in India was just smacking runs for fun everywhere, got five tests against England that summer and 
that were his only five tests, but they picked him off his white ball form. And yeah, okay, sometimes it didn't really translate, did end up taking James Anderson for like 28 or something at the Wacker one day. Um, but they picked him based off, well, runs are runs. And it doesn't matter the format or the currency. If you're hitting runs, you're hitting runs and you're in good nick. And I think Australia is still looking for a few slots in their batting order at the moment. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what they do. I wouldn't be surprised if he's in that um, extended squad. Um, of course, we're recording this on a Tuesday night. And by the time this gets released, both the squads will be out. So we wait and see what happens. But I wouldn't be surprised if he's all of a sudden bolted into their plans. And I don't think it will be an, an expense of Cameron Green, but I think you've seen what he does and what he does provide for the squad. And he'll be the type of person that Justin Lang will want to have around. And I think he has to be. And I think what he has going for him ahead of someone like a George Bailey is that he also has previous test form and especially so against England in an Ashes series. You think the last Ashes series, he made two tons. And from then on, it looked like sort of test cricket was at his feet and ready for the taking, which, you know, how it ended up turning out was unfortunate, but another few years experience and another time where he looks like he can dominate international cricket again. I think he has to be in a conversation. And I mean, when we did our squads last week, I included him in before all this, because I just thought he's going to be the second best all-rounder in Australia um, and I think it's proven that if he's doing it at international level albeit in 2020s it's, it's still at international level like you're still making runs against the world's best bowlers um, whether it's white ball or red ball you're still proving you're capable of that level so I think that means something but I think that's just solidified that I mean to me he has to be in that squad now because you need a backup all-rounder because although green has so much potential you know, he could easily slip in form and you need to have coverage for it. And to have someone who's made test centuries and has just come off scintillating form at the international level in a pressure scenario of a World Cup, that doesn't come every day. So it's pretty wonderful backup to have. And, you know, by all means, it then challenges Green to really, you know, solidify his spot in the side and make some big runs leading into it, which is a good thing to have again. And, you know, if he doesn't, then Marsh at six is just as good an option maybe not for the future because Green's younger, but still a great, great option to have for this Asher series. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what they do. Um, just moving on, we mentioned Justin Langer on the way through then. Um, shocking off-season for Justin Langer and a couple of really bad tours to um, to the West Indies and Bangladesh and all the stories emanating that he's um, very hands-on, almost too hands-on, almost too involved. And it was causing a lot of tension with the players, even thinking back to the Gabba Test sandwich gate with um, Marnus Labashane as well, that he'd get agitated over. This is um, this is a, this is all of a sudden really interesting because his, his contract with Cricket Australia runs out at the end of the Asher series. And, well, he's now won the tournament that no one thought that that get close it in and it really is going to put Nick Hockley and the powers that be at Cricket Australia in a really interesting situation. And I think the powers in his hands, obviously winning the ashes at home or retaining the ashes at home will be huge and will be a massive KPI for Justin and for Cricket Australia. But it really does throw a few more questions into that. Um, what do they do with Justin Langer now category? I agree. I think it makes it really interesting because before that, you know, we were all quite categoric and thinking that, you know, if one thing went awry this summer, that's it for Justin Langer. And even if, you know, we end up retaining the ashes, uh, it still could be his last off his own accord because things might just not be going to plan. But I think now winning that out of the blue sort of makes it all look rejuvenated a bit, which is really an interesting talking point. I think even more interesting going into the summer because it's not all negative because now all of a sudden, if Australia, you know, shows something really good in this home series and suddenly you've got two bits of evidence to say well you know arguably he's changed as a coach maybe he's listened to the advice and you know everything coming out of the camp now is positive about him so I just find it really intriguing how quickly things can change when a bit of success comes but you know if it's here to stay then it does make it a really tough decision because if you have no better option like if you don't have Ricky Ponting on board in the wings then 
you sort of go, well, do you have a better option than someone who's actually, you know, improving himself and has got the results on the board recently? So, yeah, interesting summer now. I think it spices it up quite brilliantly, the whole Langer saga. I think it's definitely it's definitely the um, temperature cooler that Cricket Australia needed just to take some of the pressure off him because you could feel it building around amongst um, media circles and just the general chatter around Cricket, Cricket Australia and just everything going on about Justin Langer and him, oh, the players uh, have it out for him and they don't really want him around anymore. And all of a sudden that's just like, well, not only has he bought himself some time, he would have bought himself probably the summer without many disruptions having made the semi-final. But now that he's won the tournament, I think it's very much, I, I actually think JL's in a bit of a position of power. Um, yeah. And I, I say that with um, the knowledge that he's got this summer, the series against England, there's some white ball stuff at the end of the summer. Then there's the tour to Pakistan. And I think his contract expires somewhere in between the summer ending and the tour of Pakistan. It might even be after that tour. So he might decide to even call it quits on Michael Clark was suggesting that he might call it quits after doing a four year period. I think he'll end up being as coach of the Australian team. And that might be enough. You see um, Tim Nielsen, the, only did it for a certain amount of time. John Buchanan before him also only did it, did it for a certain amount of time. Mickey Arthur and Darren Lehman were finished up um, when they got finished up, but it, 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 no one really overstayed their welcome. Like you don't have 10 year coaches of the Australian cricket team or any international cricket team for that matter. So I think it will be really interesting. It's going to be one of the really fascinating stories to watch. It was already before the start of the summer, but even even now more so, just what is Cricket Australia going to do and what's Justin Langer going to do as well? Because he might decide that, you know what, that's it. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point you make about especially Australian cricket coaches, but more so all cricket coaches. There aren't too many long-term ones and... I think that's going to be something that will eventually change when you get the right type of coach comes in who I think the best thing about 2020 is that it forces coaches as much as players to adapt how they go about it. And once coaches fully learn how to do that, then by all means they can adapt to, you know, over a decade how cricket is played and how the approach is. And when you do that, that's when you can coach long-term. You see in other sports. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting because the time for Langer has actually flown by and, when he comes to the end of it now, if it's if it's his decision to go after that World Cup win, you know, he's taken in the one day sphere, we've gone to a semi-final in a World Cup and there'll probably be another ODI World Cup sometime soon that Langer won't get to do, but he'll get to see sort of the impact without Langer and whether anything changes. But then to retain the Ashes twice if we do so well this summer and, you know, if we go to Pakistan and do a good show, then suddenly there's a lot of career highlights to Langer being a coach that although there's been some lowlights, it probably comes out more positive than negative because when you actually sit back and look at what's happened and when he's taken over arguably the toughest time you could have to take over an Australian cricket team as coach, that, I mean, the record stands for itself there and speaks for itself because it's hard to do all of that. And I think the key bit of this T20 World Cup win, which could make it one of the biggest bits of his coaching career, is that sort of proved a lot of critics wrong, which we heard it on this podcast as well, that, you know, the calls that Langer sort of wasn't really innovative or willing to change anything and not flexible. I think he's proven that wrong a little bit now because to win a T20 World Cup as coach, especially when you're not expected to, you need to be able to sort of change and not view it as a test cricket coach, which he's proven he can do. But... Yeah, I think it's a massive, massive change to what his coaching record will be when he eventually steps away from the game, whether it's forced or his own decision. So from the coach, we move to talking about the captain who's also been through the ringer with the Australian public and the media in recent years. He's no spring chicken, Aaron Finch, but he's he's a... a Australian cricket World Cup winning captain now, and he thoroughly deserves it. He's been through a lot. I was writing a piece today, and I remember thinking of 
it was a game against Sri Lanka in Geelong. It was in one of the end of season um, T20 series. The Australian test team's already gone off to um, India and it's a second 11 or second string Australian side. Pat Cummins was in the team, so it makes it good. Jai Richardson was also in the team. Um, but I just remember sitting there and aside from being unbelievably cold in February in Geelong, Finch's captaincy was nowhere and you could just see as that game moved on and on Sri Lanka needed about 50 to win off the last three overs and you're just thinking they're saying they're going to do this um it messed up the bowling combinations ended up being AJ Tai who went the journey at the MCG on the Friday night when Sri Lanka got over the line same thing again ended up going to um deposited into um, the Gary Ablett stand and the Charles Brownlow stand multiple times for to get Sri Lanka over the line. And you just end up thinking, well, okay, fine. It's Captain the Renegades, all you want. But at that point in time, they weren't really going anywhere. And then you look at what is been able to do, um, almost punted from captaincy on the eve of the 2019-50 over World Cup to come back, take Australia to the semifinals, wrestle form on number of occasions to hold on to a spot in the team and the captaincy injuries form um, pandemic, not playing much cricket, then go over to the West Indies, injure your knee, just make it back in time for the world cup and then have to um, lead an Australian team, which no one's given any punches chance of, doing anything meaningful in this tournament and he's the last man standing holding up the cup. It's definitely the crowning moment of his career, but I think he's perhaps not going to go down in Australian career hall of fame as what some of the, uh, some of the other great captains that we've had will, because he hasn't had much of an, yeah, because he hasn't, he hasn't had the impact at test cricket, but I think he's still going to have to go down as one of our better captains in your know, recent memory. You know, I think in the limited over sphere, because he's also both mentally and physically had a lot of times when I think we all thought this is it. He's finally dropped off. You know, he's, he's always had a technical problem, you know, on that straight ball when it comes to the leg side where he gets caught trapped in front. And we, ha- we haven't doing. mentioned it because we just haven't gone into it yet, but that ball that he got from Shai and Shah Freddy in that semi-final, no one's keeping that out. No, that's just, you know, he's he also cops some rough balls at the end of the tournament, regardless of what people are saying about his form at the end. He did he did cop some pearlers from some of the best bowlers in that tournament. So it's pretty, it's pretty hard to do that. And that's the life of an opening batter sometimes. But I think Mentally and physically, I also think to the time after that Indian summer when they first came over and beat us, where he opened in the test matches. And by the time we went over and playing one day cricket over in India, he looked shot and couldn't make a run. And I think there's been multiple times in his career where he looks like he's he's done and that's going to be it. And I think you touched on the mentally and the tactical bit as captain in that series against Sri Lanka, where I think a few of us remember that he looked just done and worn out from the captaincy and to come back in first of all to do it in the one day world cup and to captain so well and to bat well there as well with warner at the top of the order i mean those two carried us in that tournament in the batting but then to come back again in the t20 world cup where it looked like he wasn't going to get up and you know he played a couple of vital knocks to get us enough sort of of that batting run rate to get us into the semi-finals which is big in itself but his captaincy throughout it all was superb and it's something that has taken time probably to prove himself. But now with that World Cup, he just will go down as one of our better recent, I think, tactical leaders because when he's gone right on field, he's been one of the best leaders in world cricket in, in that one day in T20 sphere because he has a lot of experience, but all the decisions he seemed to make at that back end of this World Cup were superb and pretty crucial to us winning that trophy. It's quite amazing to see where it's come from and just being ridden off so many times and just be able to bounce back and you even remember that before that at the before the prior to the 2014 t20 world cup he wasn't even in the squad um Usman Khawaja was preferred to him at the top of the order so he's been through a lot Finchie in 35 now heading into another summer 
same deal at the Renegades and he'll lead the Australian white ball team for their games at the back of the summer. But I think that I think it, there might be a few, whereas if there wasn't a T20 World Cup so far, so quickly after this one just gone, it might have been the last we'd seen of him. But I think he'd definitely be back in Australia in 11 months' time defending his crown. I think he has to be. And I think the only sort of question mark over it will be his form with the bat. And if, you know, other openers in the big bash make a name for himself. But the problem is some of his biggest challenges have now done brilliantly in the middle order. So, you know, a Stoinis or a Wade, it's going to be hard to see them take his spot if what they've done in this World Cup itself means that in international standards, they're probably going to be finishers from now on because it's takes a pretty unique type of batter to do that and we don't have many and you can't go messing around with that now so i think that's going to help him but you just hope he has a good big bash because they'll all but stamp his ticket to one last world cup as captain which i think he deserves and i think we need him as captain you just hope that the form as a batter carries through because if so then he definitely deserves that crack at it yeah, exactly. And it sort of leads us into the last couple of threads on this, Sean. Uh, it is interesting that you talk about the Big Bash and I guess its place in all of this. We note that this Australian team that was been sent over to the World Cup, we've said, like, they've just picked really good cricketers. Not many of them play the Big Bash. David Warner doesn't play Big Bash. Steve Smith rarely played Big Bash. Hazelwood rarely played Big Bash. Stark rarely plays Big Bash. The only consistent Big Bash league players are um, Wade, Stoinis and Zampa um, and Finch as well, who's the captain. So there's a lot to be said about the makeup of the team and I guess where the Big Bash sits and you see them going around and playing a lot in the IPL and I guess needing, I guess it's now on this group of players as well for the next couple of years to continue, if they get a chance, play in the Big Bash and continue building up their form. And I guess also when they get the opportunity to play together in international series, we've already seen a white ball tour to New Zealand be announced the same time that the test team will be on their way to Pakistan. So they're not going to get a chance to play all together there. But you'd think that particularly, and they'd be looking to go back to back on home soil, that they just need to find opportunities to play together. Agreed. And I think that was sort of their big difference to some of the other nations, especially the ones they were playing in that final four. Is in, you know, England also threatening because they had a bunch of players who not really in the test cricket sense of the game were brilliant, but in their own domestic leagues and what they'd done around the world, they'd all been brilliant. And that was pretty threatening, but I think the brilliant part of Australia winning is that you realise it's a pretty special bunch of cricketers who a lot of them can play all three formats very well, which probably sets them apart and now makes sense as to why they'll give them preference over some of the, you know, better domestic players like a Josh Inglis or Nathan Ellis, because they sort of realised that they had a squad of players who are pretty special in all three formats, which hats off to them for sticking with that because when every other nation has gone and decided to pick their best domestic players, it can be pretty hard not to go along with that. But yeah, I think it's interesting because I still think there's a place where I think the biggest part of where those international cricketers like a Warner and a Smith and a Hazelwood and a Stark should be going back to the big backs when they can is because it also helps bring up that next wave of cricketers, which they're going to be fueling our after next year. They're going to be fueling our T20 World Cups because we're eventually going to go that way because, you know, generations don't really say that you're going to keep producing cricketers who can do all three formats so well. So we're going to have to start relying on the Big Bash, which will be an interesting time because I think this World Cup proved that there's a little bit of a gap between some of them. Um, and, yeah, I think... It's pretty exciting, though, because you just hope they can get back around a test schedule to get into the Big Bash. Because if you bring through the likes of some of the exciting prospects, then it can really sort of go away as what England's team is now, which although they didn't get the chocolates, they still look like a pretty good blueprint going forward for sustainable, successful T20 cricket at, at the international level. Well said. Um, wholeheartedly agree. Um, before we um, before we move off Australia and just touch briefly on New Zealand and what they've been able to do because they've been 
a big player across the ICC and world cricket over the last six years. Um, David Warner, player of the tournament. Everyone thought he should retire after he got sacked from um, Sunrise's Hyderabad and even told, don't even bother coming to the ground, mate. Um, but he's back in the runs and he's David Warner back in the runs and looking fit and good form is amazing for Australia and possibly terrifying for England. It's exciting for the Ashes because I think Australia needed him because I'm still very scared of that second opener spot and what the likes of a Stuart Broad is going to be able to do. But to have Warner in form, I think, is necessary if we're going to really do well in this upcoming Ashes, and it's exactly what he needed. And although there's a lot of reasons to dislike Warner, especially internationally, I think he gives some pretty big reasons as to why he's one of the better modern cricketers we've ever seen because he just keeps coming back and finding form in his own way and it's pretty spectacular to watch. I mean, the back half of this tournament, he just was amazing and I think the only person I think who was truly ripped off from that man the tournament award was Adam Sampa in my eyes. Yeah, Zams was terrific, Um, absolutely terrific, as were New Zealand who... Unfortunately, uh, the Bridesmaids again in an ICZ tournament, they've been quite remarkable with what they've been able to do across and ever since 2015, that World Cup that they made it into the final and blown off the park against Australia. They were um, drew the 2019 World Cup final, won the ICC World Test Championship, the first one there, and again have made the final of another World Cup. It's a real special group of cricketers coming through New Zealand at the moment with more great stories, none more so special than their captain, Steady the Ship, Kane Williamson, who just put together one of the most masterful 80-odds in T20 cricket um, that you're likely to ever see, just the way that he was batting and really taking the game away from Australia and (laughs) playing a lone hand, it must be said, but the way that he keeps on conducting himself both off the field and with a cricket bat in hand is just, it makes him just one of the world's best. And you can't not be, you can't not be happy watching him bat and just the way that he conducts this whole New Zealand team is just makes him so likable and watchable. Agreed. And I mean, I think he's, Definitely going to go down as New Zealand's probably greatest ever leader in terms of world career because what he's been able to do with that squad in all three formats is pretty spectacular. But also the way in which he's done it is something that's there's nothing you could ever say against him because he just looks like a really spectacular leader um, and a really wonderful down to earth person who you know shows every value that you'd want out of a out of a leader of your cricket side and your nation's cricket side. But I think that that knock in the final also probably proved that. In my eyes, he's the best all-format batter we've got in the world. I think, you know, there was Coley and Babarazan both knocking down the door, as is maybe a David Warner. But I think Williamson's knock proved that, you know, in all three formats, he's in the top three in the world, which is pretty unique. And, I mean, it was just spectacular because no other batter looked like they could really get going against Australia's attack, which, when you look at it now, in all three formats, is a very threatening attack. But... Yeah, I just think it's, I think that that innings just showed what he could do. And I'm, although I'm absolutely over the moon that Australia won, I do really hope that, you know, when there's a World Cup coming up next, if New Zealand are there at the pointy end and it's not against Australia, they just deserve that breakthrough because they've put together something special. And I think the main man, Williamson, deserves it because he's done everything right to deserve being a World Cup winning captain. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree with you more there, mate. Um, you just watch him bat, and particularly the way he batted on um, Sunday night, Monday morning, he didn't bludgeon the ball. He just, like, picked his bowler, knew he was going to target the fifth bowling option from Australia, so Glenn Maxwell and Mitchell Marsh, and then once he took his form from there, started taking it to Mitchell Stark. But he didn't bludgeon the ball at all. They were just, like, really good, well-timed cricket shots, nothing like to say that he had to muscle the ball over the boundary, just really playing it so cleverly. And that's what he does. It's just his touch and his finesse and is able to get the ball into different areas. And it's just made him beautiful to watch for so many years now. And again, I, I really hope that a day comes soon that he's standing up there on the dais at the end, 
with his victorious team again getting that white ball trophy because he absolutely deserves it. Well, it's enough of the serious talk for a little bit. Let's um, ratchet back a bit. Now that's the funniest thing I've seen for a long time. Now how many of you picked this up? I can't believe it and he can't either. So I think we're very much keeping the theme of this um, T20 World Cup wrap with... um, I'm sorry, what? You're going to kick us off. Um, it was a late enough night as it was, but someone needs, I think you're about to just tell someone at the ICC what the idea of a run sheet is. Yeah, whatever they're doing with their schedule did not make Sleep Deprived Sean pretty happy um, on Monday morning. I think, you know, the game probably finishes, let me think, I don't know, it's a bleary time now, but I'd say about 430 in the morning, probably around Some, the guts. Something like that. They finished yeah. finish with an over to spare. Yeah, so it was around there, maybe getting closer to five. But, yeah, you know, all good and happy. You think, you know, you should have everything set up like they do in every other major sporting event that you can wheel out the dice and everything. And, you know, the trophy's already on hand. You know, you have people there to hand it out. You think it should be a pretty simple hand out everything, lift the trophy, go on your glory lap start celebrating in the change rooms type setup but Australia thanks for staying up you can go to bed now yeah exactly think a bit of a, a bit of a little bit of a reward for all of us would have been perfect but instead the ICC decided to keep all of us who wanted to see the trophy lifted up for a fair bit longer I think it was the best part of an hour probably 45 minutes until a trophy was brought onto the ground and I just couldn't believe it that although it was pretty hard to be negative at the time I went to bed a little bit filthy knowing that I should have been in bed half an hour ago. And, you know, when you're up all night, that half an hour of sleep is pretty important. So that, that was, um, that was something that made me say, I'm sorry, what, when I just couldn't believe going, where is this world cup? Have they lost it? Why have I missed them bringing it out? Am I hallucinating? Cause I'm that sleep deprived, but yeah, I don't know. It was just fairly disappointing. And I hope going forward that, if they're going to schedule games when we have to stay up all night, they're at least going to give us the chocolates in pretty appropriate time after the game's done. So I've got, I've got a, I've got a question for the ICC. Now I granted one, one of these is beyond their control, but 2019 world cup final was on the same day as the Wimbledon final. And just so happens that it ends up being the greatest Wimbledon final in the history of the sport and people's remotes are going absolutely bunter trying to work out what channel to keep it on so someone would have definitely gotten the please explain there the world test championship final i'll cut them some slack because they decided to play the game in england and well it always rains in england um (laughs) so luckily that at day six but again this one okay you're playing in dubai no chance of rain, no chance of it really clashing with anything else major on the sporting calendar. Maybe a Grand Prix in Brazil as well that starts really early in the morning for the motorhead, for the, all the motorhead fans. But keep everyone waiting when you had the opportunity to potentially move the game and you didn't because you wanted the prime time into um, India where all your eyeballs are going. And that's fair enough, but be timely, be considerate. Think of Sean. Think of Sean to go to sleep and then get up for work the next day, as did the rest of Australia. Well, I hope the ICC uses that mantra in their next mission statement. Think of Sean. I think that'd be good. But I think the issue with it all was just that they were getting dangerously close to Sunday night football and, you know, all the kickoff in the in the NFL. I mean, it almost felt like you were ready to get the mm. American sports on the way. I could have stayed up for an extra 20 minutes and gone kickoff at about 10 games. That Red zone was afternoon. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. It could have been. There were some great games there, so I really could have, you know, done that, which I don't know if the ICC really think of the NFL in in their doing it, but they can at least think of Sean. Sorry, I'm just writing a letter to Sean's boss and it was just like, excuse Sean for being a zombie for the week. He stayed up all night watching sport. Blame the ICC. I think they have to be okay with that. Yeah, blame the ICC. They can take it to them and to and the NFL red zone being on the other side of the world. Just kidding, ICC, you did a fantastic job and well done on getting another tournament off the way, particularly in the middle of a COVID pandemic. So mine, um, mine comes from the same game, funnily enough, um, and probably about, probably just moments before the whole ordeal that you've just described there, Sean. But 
Glenn Maxwell, we've spoken about him before. There's only one shot Glenn Maxwell's playing to hit the leading runs in a World Cup final. And that's a switch hit. Now, I'm not going, I'm sorry, what about him hitting the switch hit? Because that's just like the best thing you'll ever say. My I'm sorry, what is to Stoinis, Zampa, and I think Nathan Ellis as well, who is standing on the boundary line. So rightfully so, winning runs get hit. Teammates run on the ground, get in and amongst these celebrations. The ball is only just past Adam Milne at short fine leg and is skipping away to the boundary line. And Stoinis is already on the field, ready to go and give Mitchell Marsh a hug. Just like in any other main sporting event, I think, be disqualified then and there. I think someone put out a tweet and it was like, hmm, if only Kane Williamson knew the rule about a head count and what that actually meant. So... That's my, I'm sorry, what? Just wait for it all to be like official. Wait for the umpire to signal and then run on the ground. I thought, okay, yeah, great. Excited. You won the World Cup, but don't do anything silly, guys, to like make the umpires reverse the decision or call dead ball because this is an intruder on the field. It'd be quite a quick work from Kane to be able to call a head count as that ball skipped away to the boundary. That would have been some, I think that would have been the best captaincy move ever. But I think, I think you touch on a wider issue there. And what I didn't like is that, there was no coordination in that Australian celebration. I mean, half of them stayed up on the balcony and half of them went down. I would have liked an this all in or, or none. Yeah, I didn't like point. that. I would have, if they're all going to go on the field and do it, you may as well make it a you know a wave. Back we used to see when it was just VFL football and people sitting on the sidelines and coming on as the siren's already done. If you're going to do it, you've got to Simon do it with a wave of people. Simon Beasley, hello. <laughs> It, that's exactly. And you see, only reason why that worked is because you had a big crowd. If it was just three people running on, then it does yeah. nothing. You had a Whereas, big crowd and like 20,000 people on the mark along with the Fitzroy players. Exactly. So if you're going to do it, you at least go with all, all the other players and maybe a langer or some, or, you know, you chuck a few of the physios on or something, you at least make it a bit more intimidating. Whereas it was just kind of a, a little bit weak, but I understand the tokenism, but I agree. If you're, if you're going to do it and, play with the rules a bit with that, then you may as well put them all on and make it a bit more exciting for everyone. Uh, it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been a good week. It's been a very good week watching the um, T20 World Cup final. It's been a great tournament and we don't have to wait too long until there's another edition of the ICC T20 World Cup on our doorstep, which I'm sure will be over the top of. We're nearly out of time, but we do need a touch on the WBBL as well. It keeps going on. It's getting towards the pointy end. And it's a special week for the WBBL this week. It is. I mean, with everything going on, I think we, when we've seen with the Indigenous and their heritage around and you see some of their some of the kits that they're wearing already. I mean, you see the Brisbane Heat one with the, that's, you know, more with a black base and then they've got the Aboriginal artwork and on the front. I think that looks wonderful. And mm. to see that up in the Great Barrier Reef and Mackay has been wonderful. And, you know, the Sixers did the same in that game, although there was a bit of spice in that contest. But, um, yeah, I still think it's absolutely great week for it. And especially when you're leading into the finals, it's a perfect time to have it because everyone's already got their eyes glued because there's a lot at stake. But to be able to then show off everything to do with the Indigenous culture and the pride with it is absolutely the perfect time to everyone, you know, be able to respect what it means and to be able to sort of, you know, get around what the whole message is with it. I think it's a perfect time and hats off to Cricket Australia for how they've timed it because everything so far seems to be going wonderfully with it. Well, Cheers to the Australian men who would just get more eyeballs on the cricket after doing what they did. But I completely agree. They've ended up timing it really, really well and having everything. All the kits are absolutely fantastic. The Heats one is really, really good. But I've just seen the Adelaide Strikers one before we logged on to record. And I definitely recommend that you go and check that out. Check all of them out. Um, five First Nations players, again, suiting up in this year's edition of the tournament. Ash Gardner from the Sixers, Michaela Hinckley at the Heat, Hannah Darlington and Annika Leroyd from the Thunder and also Ella Haywood at the Renegades. It's very interesting. There's a bonus podcast in our feed with Ash Gardner and she speaks about the need and how there is a want for um, Cricket Australia to do more work, to get more Indigenous creators involved in the game. You can listen to that 
live now it's went live in our podcast feed on wednesday but it's very interesting ash talked a lot about you can't be what you can't see she's only the um second female indigenous player to play test cricket for australia and only the third overall behind um faith thomas and jason gillespie so there's a big element of that but there's also a real responsibility now for those girls in the competition and cricket australia to keep building and keep building the competition and building and doing community work in those remote communities to find the next Ash Garden or Dan Christian or Darcy Short or Michaela Hinckley or Hannah Darlington to go off and be that, be those role models in those Indigenous communities. You are spot on. I couldn't have said it better myself, Trono. I think that everything about this round and this run home and the exposure it's giving is such a positive thing for every part of Australia, not just in terms of cricket, but socially and culturally. I think it is a wonderful time to have it but also a wonderful message to be conveying and yeah you're totally right that you know the more indigenous whether it's young girls at the moment which are wbbl's targeting but the more young indigenous people you get into the game the better the game's going to be for it and i think it's the same as you know the the more respect you give indigenous people as a whole in australia the better the country's going to be for it and i think yeah i just can't wait to see hopefully there's with the superb timing of everything in the next week that it really gives more people in those remote communities a chance to play and take it up because all they're going to do is add more greatness to the game and to Australia. So very exciting times. And I mean, the way that the WBBL is going, the standards only getting better and better and the matches are only getting more impressive. So it's only going to do more for cricket as a brand in Australia for the these Indigenous and First Nation communities, which is exciting for everyone as it rolls on, as a flow-on effect. Well, it really has been a fantastic, fantastic tournament. A couple of teams have dropped off the pace, the Hurricanes, unfortunately, the Thunder causing a few problems for everyone on the ride home. The Sixers, well... It's all just hasn't got, nothing's gone right for them and the stars are battling as well. But even then, it's been a tremendous tournament and I think it really deserves the finish that it will get with semifinals and the final next weekend. So hopefully they're able to get on in a nice um, open venue and they pack it out because they definitely 100% deserve it. They do. And I think what makes it so good, this tournament, is that they had every reason for it to be, you know, a bit of a humble one and maybe not as good as years past. Because when you start in a bubble in Tasmania, it's pretty hard to get the excitement going and to get everyone on board to really produce great cricket immediately. But they did. But when they then take it, then when things open up and it only gets better, it's only more exciting for everyone else watching. And even the last weekend to have games played up in Mackay will just add another element that was just brilliant to watch. And just, it's a lot of the time in some of the men's big bash and in some of the previous women's big bashes, the fixture sort of meant that by that sort of back third, you get a bit bored of it, a bit tired. But I don't know about you, I found in this one that every game that's been on it is WBBL. I have been absolutely glued to because the way the whole scenario is working on the table in that, you know, any of these top four teams now can win with the sixes dropping off. They're probably done for, which I think is a massive story in itself and going to cause pretty big rift through, you know, the Sydney Sixers cricket and New South Wales cricket, because that's just going to be a massive drop off for them. But then to sort of have what's shaping up to be their best final series ever. And after, or probably their most competitive, you know, regular season ever, full of probably the best standard of cricket we've seen by far after what was already the superb multi-format series between Australia and India. The women's game is just flying. And I mean, just more and more eyes are watching it and loving it and consistently going back to it because it's now turned into such an exciting contest every time teams go out and take the field. Well, I'm constantly blown away by the fielding across all, all the teams, all the girls and whether or not they've played 100 games for Australia, two games for Australia, or no games for Australia. They're just, their fielding standards just keep on blowing through the roof. And I think that's really led to the evolution of the competition and the girls are getting better. And of course, we've got the Ashes series to look forward to at the end of the um, men's Ashes series as well, which is going to be an absolute 
Delta, which we will be sure to cover. Um, I think that's about it. I think we've done we've done a lot of celebrating tonight, but we've needed to do a lot of celebrating tonight. Um, and we've still got a bit of sleep to catch up on as well. So, uh, cheers for joining us, mate. It's been it's been a, it's been a good one. It has, and I think the past week has led to that. But the exciting thing is it's only going to get better. We're only going to have more to talk about. So exciting summer ahead now. It sets the scene beautifully. It really, really does. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter, at Over and Stumps. You can read all our fantastic work at www.theinnersanctum.com.au. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, Tell your mates about us as well and tune in. We're going to be doing some fantastic and exciting things as the summer draws closer and we tick down to the ashes, which we're all very excited about. Hopefully the Melbourne weather gods are kind to us as well and let us get on for some cricket. I hope so. I mean, I'm playing the old club on the weekend, so I want to be able to get on the field, but we'll see how we go. Oh, well, we had a report to grounds on Saturday and Sunday for no play, and it might be exactly the same. Um, great to chat with you again, mate. Let's do it again soon. Sounds good. Every week for me, perfect. And, and until next week, that is over and stumps. <laughs>